The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Gary and Bev are visiting missionaries. They did a conference with James and Jennifer Arnold with Amy Jez over in France. They're headed tomorrow to see the Landrums in Spain, but I don't know how this picture got to me. Uh, but I'm really glad it did, and I want to tell you two things about it. Number one, for those of you who love cats, and Gary acts like he hates cats, that's all a, a sham. He actually loves cats. And, and if you're one of those people like me, um, Gary's a cat person. And I'll leave that there. So we're in Daniel chapter 4. We're in Daniel chapter 4, continuing a series in this young Hebrew prophet is called upon a second time to interpret a disturbing dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And in this chapter, with love for his king, he tells him what his dream means, he calls him to repent, and we get the privilege of being reminded who's really in control in Babylon. So Israel is in exile Nebuchadnezzar is telling a story according to the first few verses of chapter 4. And it's a story that he wants all peoples, nations, and languages to hear. He says it seems good, seems good for him to tell this story of the wonders that the Most High God has done for him. So God has done something very good for him. And we'll pick it up in, in about verse 3. He says, of the Most High God, how great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, I, I want to ask the question I, that, as I think about it, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I think the text maybe ends up answering it. Why is the dream of a pagan king in Israel's Scripture? I mean, I, I get the dream in chapter 2, because it's about all of these coming kingdoms. I get the fiery furnace for sure, where... God has shown great, I get Daniel in the lion's den, but why this dream that ends up being about God's kingdom? So he has this dream and it frightens him and he calls all the wise men of Babylon to come and tell him what the dream means and just like in chapter 2, no one can do that. No one can. So he calls on Daniel whom he calls Belteshazzar after his God. He said, I need to understand what this dream means. And so the dream is of this tree that grows majestic and beautiful. Its branches spread out. It's got leaves that offer covering for the beasts of the field, birds of the air. And he wants Daniel to interpret this dream. And then the dream, here's where it gets scary. Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, 
lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze, let the tender grass of the field, I mean the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, why? To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. We hear that repeated in this chapter. It's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar says it made him afraid. Maybe he knew. Maybe he knew what the dream meant. But Daniel comes to interpret it. And Daniel, who's been held captive, he's essentially a slave... And he hears the dream and he's alarmed. And the king says, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you in verse 19. But Daniel says, may the, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And then he goes on to say, you're the tree. You're the tree that's grown beautiful and glorious and majestic and you're kingdom, it's expanded and spread out like those branches, leaves covering the nations, a beast of the field and rest under it, birds of the air, and you're the tree that gets chopped down. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, it's a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with a beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Scripture will go on to say that when this comes about, his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his fingers like the claws of a bird. That's just hard to even read aloud. And seven periods of time, some translations say seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Verse 26 as it was commanded to leave the stump, the roots, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know, again, that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That perhaps there might be a lengthening of your prosperity, and then 12 months later, it happens. Nebuchadnezzar's on top of his palace telling himself how great his kingdom is and it happens. His kingdom is stripped from him. He's made to go out with a beast of the field eating grass like an ox for seven periods of time. And then the Scripture tells us in, in verse 34 that after a period of time, I, he says, I lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He goes on to say in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
Well, God, You indeed are King and You rule and reign. And that's our confession. You're God and we are not. And that's a good thing. And so God, as You rule and reign, I pray, Father, today that You would give us confidence in You, that we would trust in You and put our hope in You, and that we would submit our lives in humility before You. In Jesus' name, Amen. So what's the lesson of Daniel 4? All this scripture we've read about these dreams and a king being made to look like a beast, and then his kingdom being restored to him. We heard it over and over and over, and the lesson is this. God rules and reigns over the kings and kingdoms of the earth. He's actively involved in the affairs of humanity. That's it. That's the lesson of the chapter. We'll see over and over. God rules and reigns over the kings and kingdoms of the earth, and He's actively involved in the affairs of humanity. And goodness, what a good thing that is. Let's just look back at some of these verses that point to this idea. So in the dream, the Holy One, the watchers proclaim aloud, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, um, strip its leaves, and scatter its fruit. This sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the Holy Ones. Why? That the living may know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the interpretation which has come. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field until the time you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And it was commanded to leave the stump and its roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. While the words were still on the king's mouth, he's there in Babylon proclaiming his greatness and his goodness. A voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom has departed from you. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled. When I read that in verse 33, it makes me think of Isaiah 55 when God is explaining to Isaiah how his word goes out. He says, so shall my word be. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. It shall accomplish what I purpose, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Then Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. God is ruling and reigning, and none can say His hand or say, what have you done? He says, I extol and honor the kingdom of heaven. His works are right, His ways are just. That's Nebuchadnezzar after this has happened to him. He recognizes God's done it and God's been good in it. He's able to humble those who walk in pride. See, we could see this idea over and over and over again in the Scripture. Just a couple places where it's alluded to in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.11 says, He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Gary, we're here, he would tell us that word, all things in the Greek. Those words mean all things. He's the one who is before all things. In Him, all things hold together. And we could go on and on and on. 
See, God's providence is a beautiful and a mysterious doctrine. And the writers of Scripture don't tend to apologize for it, so I'm not going to apologize for it either this morning, but what I am going to say is let's confess with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Well, there there are two categories of of people, I guess. There are probably lots more. When people say there are two categories of people, that's not usually true, but let me just say it for the sake of argument. And there are folks that love this idea or doctrine of God's providence, and there are folks who hate it. And there's a real struggle for folks on both sides to really wrestle with pride. It's a pride issue for those who hate it because we want to be God. We don't like the idea that He's in control. We want ultimate self-determination just like Adam and Eve did. And then for those who love it, sometimes we can love this doctrine and think we understand it and get the mechanisms of it and can speak eloquently about it. And how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. They're past finding out. What I can tell you though is that there are many conclusions you can come Two, from reading Daniel chapter 4, but if one of them is not that there's a God who rules and reigns over the kings and kingdoms of the earth, and He's actively involved in the affairs of human life, then you, you might want to reread it. God intervened. Nebuchadnezzar's self-determining will and thought processes were stopped. And this was kind. It seemed good, verse 2, for me to tell you the signs and wonders the Most High God has done for me. This was a grace gift. God rules and reigns. And we know what that has to do with Nebuchadnezzar, but what did that have to do with the Hebrew children, and much less a modern day country like America or us? Well, we're going to look back at verse 29. And talk about that. The issue though is that Nebuchadnezzar is consumed with himself. He's consumed with his own greatness. His kingdom. His power. His majesty. Maybe Israel was with theirs. Maybe they'd forgotten that they were to be a light to the nations. And maybe that's why they ended up in captivity and exile in the first place. What does that have to do with us? I mean we we do live in a society consumed with Self, consumed with our beauty, consumed with our strength, consumed with our bodies, consumed with our minds, consumed with duck lips, selfies, and hunting leases, and football teams, and shopping sprees, and cars, and houses. And thanks to social media, we're not just consumed with our own in each of these, we're consumed with everybody else's. It's, it's been a season and a half ago, and there are thousands of men in the world that still know Dez made that catch. And he didn't make that catch, according to those who were sovereign in the situation. God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know he's in control. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to know he values humility. At the end of 12 months, it says in verse 29, Daniel has told him to repent. At the end of 12 months, it says he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is Not this great Babylon, 
which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven. Now, a couple of months ago, there was a Miss Universe pageant. Steve Harvey's hosting it. It's at the end of the pageant, and the runner-up and the winner, they're standing there waiting to find out who it will be. And so he says, Miss Universe is Miss Columbia. This lady comes out and they put a crown on her head, a banner that says Miss Universe, give her these beautiful flowers. She starts taking her walk and Steve Harvey walks back out on stage and says, excuse, excuse me folks, there's, there's been a mistake. Miss Columbia is not Miss Universe. Miss Universe is actually... Miss Philippines, and so they just very elegantly, as elegantly as you can, take the crown off her head, take the banner off, take the flowers off. Let me ask you just an honest question I don't know the answer to. Do you think Miss Columbia struggles with pride? You think she did? I don't know the answer to that. You think Miss Columbia had worked hard all her life to be the most beautiful lady in the world? You think she might have had work done? And there's Nebuchadnezzar the Great on his roof. Can you just see it? A voice from heaven dressed like Steve Harvey walks out and says, Excuse me, there, there's been a mistake. And a voice falls from heaven and says, Your kingdom is removed from you. It has departed and you shall be driven from among men. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Now can you imagine, for 12 months, they heard this interpretation and his wise men are standing around him going, Nebuchadnezzar, this isn't going to happen. You're Nebuchadnezzar the Great. And this is some Hebrew slave who's just mad because you got him here in captivity with his friends. Nobody, who's going to take Babylon from you? You're not going to be eating with the beast of the field? Let's see, God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Pride would ultimately destroy him just like it would destroy you and me. See, 12 months earlier he had heard, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. See, I, I believe that repentance is linked to us turning and walking according to the nature and ways of God. In fact, true repentance leads us to walk in the ways of God. That's why he says in verse 27, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Why didn't he just say, break off your sins by letting us go home and leaving us alone? Because Daniel knew this ultimately wasn't about the kingdom of Babylon or 
Israel itself, but it's about the kingdom of God. How is repentance linked to the ways of God? He's told to do two things. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Look over in verse 37. When Nebuchadnezzar is ending this confession, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are right. He acts righteously. And his ways are just. He's a just God, showing mercy, kindness, care for the oppressed. It sounds a lot like Micah 6.8, where, where we're told... What we're required to do is do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God. Or James 1.27 that says pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress and then to keep ourselves unstained from the world, to walk in righteousness. Repentance leads to walking in the ways of God. And I, I think this verse right in... In the middle of the chapter is really important for us to think about because some of us today are very, very close to a Nebuchadnezzar moment. Some of you in this room, not many of you, I hope, none of you, I wish, but the reality is some of you, you're either cheating on your spouse or you're entertaining the idea and about to. There's somebody at work the grass looks greener. And, and you're about to walk into a path of darkness and destruction. You're going to look as foolish as a king eating grass with hair as long as eagle's feathers and fingers like bird claws. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Some of you... You don't respect authority at work and you're rude to people. You act like you own the place. Some of you, you rule your kids with an iron fist and you make sure that they and your wife know who's king in your castle. It's a Nebuchadnezzar moment. Some of you are dabbling with drugs and alcohol. And just like those wise men might have been whispering to Nebuchadnezzar, there's a little voice, even as I say it, some of you are thinking, that's not going to happen to me. This is going to be just fine. There's a little voice whispering in your head, surely you will not die. i got to know what he's talking about. Surely you will not die. And your kingdom's about to depart from you. Surely you will not die. I, I think about this. I think back to Abram and Sarah and God's promise. He's going to send a, a child of promise, Isaac, to them. But they're both too old and they wait what seems to them like too many years. And Sarah says, hey, I tell you what, why don't you sleep with my handmaiden and she'll bear you a son. And Abraham goes, hey, that's a, that sounds like a great idea. I'll do that. And the serpent whispers, surely you will not die. And so Ishmael is born. And the world has been dealing with that sin for the last 3,000 plus years. So I guess this leads us to a thought. We, 
we ought to consider when it comes to the fact that God rules and reigns, there, there are really a couple of dangers that a passage like this reminds me of. And one is just to get frustrated and think He's not really ruling and reigning until you realize that He is. Whether it's Nebuchadnezzar at the end of seven years or whether it's that righteous man Job at the end of a really hard life. Ultimately, our confession is going to be that God rules and reigns. And it might even be when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's one danger. The other is to take God's providence and really just to use it as an excuse for sin. You know, if God's in control, I really don't need to evangelize and missions just doesn't matter. He'll make happen what He wants to happen. I mean, if He's really in control, does it really matter if I show up at that church house? I can work for God however I want to. It doesn't matter if I meet with people regularly. It doesn't matter if I serve. It doesn't matter if I give. It doesn't matter if I share. He's going to do what He's going to do. Or where it gets really ugly is maybe there's this sin I'm entering into or have entered into. I mean, it was, it's all part of God's plan. He's in control. No big deal. I'll be fine. And see, that where that's dangerous is that we think that we understand and know the ways of God. But see, the same God who inspired verse 35 that says none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Inspired verse 27 that says, therefore break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. He rules and reigns and God and sin are not friends. If you think they are, you just look to the cross and see Jesus hanging there. For your sin and mine. So much sin is rooted in lust for glory and, and pride. And that's Nebuchadnezzar's issue. And, and it would be easy for you to be sitting here, and maybe you are, thinking, well, that's great, Nebuchadnezzar was prideful, but I really don't struggle with pride. And I just want to help you today. <laughs> yes, we do. We do. We all do. We all do. See, that, that same serpent that said, surely, surely you will not die, said, you'll be like God. You'll be like God if you eat this fruit. And so they ate it, and the reality is they were nothing like God. He had nothing to be ashamed of, and they were naked and ashamed. He, he wasn't hiding from anybody, and they went and hid themselves. He's ready to answer the questions, and they're just making excuses. See, they marred. They marred His image. How big an issue is pride to, get to God? The, the, the first danger is to think we don't struggle with pride when we, we do. The second danger is to think this is probably not a big issue. See, it's a big enough issue that, that it drove Israel into captivity. It's a big enough issue that it drove a king to eat with a beast of the field for seven periods of time. 
But come on, Chase, what about pride today? I mean, we live in a culture so consumed with pride that pride just is not made to be a big deal. What about murderers? What about thieves? What about drug dealers? Well, what does the Scripture say? Let's just look together. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride of arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble there is wisdom. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person right there with murder, sexual immorality, Theft, adultery, wickedness. He says, pride. Do not love the world, John tells us, for the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, what's in the world? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and it's going to pass away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time, He might lift you up. God detests pride. And while God detests pride, God loves humility. He loves humility. It says in Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So heaven and earth, remember those What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, heaven and earth. And all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, the beauty of this story is that it's ultimately redemptive. It's ultimately redemptive because Nebuchadnezzar is going to recognize that God is God. This, this verse in Isaiah 66, there are folks in the church, sometimes leaders in churches, that they see that and they're really bothered by this idea of God's ruling and reigning, His providential reign. And they just say, well, I mean, what kind of God is it? What kind of God is it that loves it when people tremble at His Word? And the answer is that it's the kind of God who gives us life and breath and everything else. It's the kind of God who is sustaining our heartbeats even as we speak. It's the kind of God who would put His Son up on a cross 
to take our sins away so that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So that's the kind of God who loves humility. Well, what is humility? It's really just looking away from ourselves as ruler, king, and able to God. At the end of my days, verse 34, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar looked to God, and something happened that made him stop being consumed with his own majesty and glory and kingdom like he had been before. And by by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom is restored, but his kingdom would eventually fall as all the kingdoms in the earth eventually do. So in, in an election year, it might be really good for us to remember that God rules and reigns over the kings and kingdoms of the earth, and He sets in power the lowliest of men. So don't misplace your hope this election year. Vote. Exercise your right to vote. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. And you ought to vote, but don't hope in who gets elected or who doesn't get elected. Some of you might do that. You might say, well, I don't hope in it. It just really, really matters to me. And that's true. It ought to matter to us. But for some of you, when you talk, it really it just kind of sounds like you hope in who gets elected or who doesn't. Hope in God. Exercise your rights as a citizen. But know that there is only one kingdom, as Nebuchadnezzar knew, whose dominion will be everlasting a kingdom which will endure from generation to generation. His focus, by the grace of God, shifted away from His kingdom, His glory, His reputation, to God's dominion, God's kingdom, God's authority, God's restorative power, God's righteousness, and God's justice. Restoration came to Nebuchadnezzar, and it came to him in such a way that he wasn't afraid to tell the story of his own humiliation. It seemed good to me to tell you the signs and wonders God has done for me. He wasn't hiding his limp. I woke woke up Monday morning and I had a little little pain kind of right back in here where supposedly your sciatic nerve is. Um, I'm I'm not a doctor, but I played one a couple of times when I was in high school, right? And it hurt. But it got better after about an hour, and then Tuesday it hurt again, and then Wednesday I, I woke up, and I tried to get out of bed, and there was a problem. I was just hurting, and I got up and was walking around, getting ready for work, kind of doing this, chasing one of my little boys, getting into whatever it was they were getting into that they weren't supposed to be in that 10-minute period. And my wife said, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing's wrong with me, I'm fine. She goes, well, you're limping. I'm not limping. I'm a man. I'll catch this kid in a second. I'm just fine. I've kind of got my back up. I'm okay. Well, that happened happened Wednesday, and I woke up Thursday morning. It's kind of the same thing. And she said, maybe you might need to go see a doctor or a chiropractor. I don't need to go see a doctor. I'm just fine. I was just hurting. And I, I can maintain that walked for about five seconds, and then I went back to my limp. And by the grace of God, Friday I woke up and I was just fine. 
But I, I got to tell you, Wednesday and Thursday, I thought a lot about Jacob, and how he wrestled with God and went away with that limp. I read that story in Genesis over and over, just praying and thinking through how sometimes we might try to hide our limps. Maybe you just go through a hard, hard circumstance, which some of you have recently walked through, some of you are walking through. Or maybe it's just a, a time of gross rebellion and disobedience and, and you come back to God, but you come back with a limp. Listen, don't hide your limp. Don't be afraid to tell the story of your own humiliation and God's goodness to you. See, Nebuchadnezzar says, God rules and reigns. I'm not the king that I thought I was. He tells of God's restorative heart to those who humble themselves before Him. But why in the world, as we close, would God put the story of a pagan king in the Hebrew Scripture? It's still just, I, I don't understand. A, a fiery furnace makes sense. A Daniel lines it in makes sense. But why this dream? Well, could it be that Israel, just like Nebuchadnezzar, had given been given a special place in the story of God and they didn't know what their purpose was? Could it be that they'd been raised up for the very purpose of displaying God's greatness among the nations? Could it be that they had become consumed with themselves and their own national identity and they'd forgotten that they were to be a light to the nations, that God's salvation might reach the ends of the earth. Could it be that their captivity in Babylon had them as out of place as a king eating grass with a bunch of oxen? Well, what, is, what does it have to do with us? I mean, aren't, aren't you glad that we don't struggle with things like that here, here in the Western church? Aren't you glad we, we never confuse our national identity with our identity as children of God? I'm, I'm glad we never do that. Aren't you glad we never get consumed with the greatness and security that we enjoy and forget our mission of practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed? We, I mean, we never do that, right? Other, otherwise, we might... We might be called to break off our sins by practicing righteousness and our iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. See, when I, when I think about that tree and that dream that was cut down and made into a stump and set low for a season and then restored, it makes me think about another tree. There was this tree on Golgotha that the Son of Man and the Son of God hung upon. And when He was taken down, He wasn't alive and sent to be with a beast of the field. He was dead and put in a borrowed tomb. And it wasn't seven time periods later, it was three days later that He rose from the dead and He conquered death and even now He sits at the right hand of the Father. See, that, that's the message of Daniel 4. It's not for his personal restoration, but for the redemption of the nation. So what's the 
message of Daniel chapter 4. It's that Jesus, Jesus who rose from the dead, rules and reigns of the kings and kingdoms of the earth. And He's actively involved in the affairs of humanity. Aren't you happy that Jesus is involved in your life? Aren't you grateful? What would it be without Him as the one who rules and reigns? What would earth look like without hope of the new heavens and the new earth? So a couple of questions. Do you recognize that He's ruling and reigning? Are you still deceived into thinking that you are? If you are, today would be a day of repentance and turning and restoration for you. Last question would be, have you come to know Him as your Savior and King? Do you know and recognize Jesus as the one who died for you and who rose from the dead? He offers you life and hope today. If you want to visit about that this morning, I'll be down front and would love to talk with you. Let's pray. But God, our confession is this, that you indeed are God. With Nebuchadnezzar we say your dominion is an everlasting dominion and your kingdom endures from generation to generation and no one can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? And God, like our great father and mother in the garden, we recognize that we've believed the lie, surely you will not die, you'll be like God's and We wrestle with pride many of our days, and so we repent. We repent, and we recognize you as one whose works are right and ways are just, who's able to humble those who are prideful. So God, help us walk in humility toward you and one another, and help us to shine the bright light of Jesus Christ in our world, who rules and reigns over the nations. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.